All right. We've been going through a series, uh, a contemplative series, and trying to uh, really get a handle on what uh, the contemplative way, the contemplative life is all about. And I wanted to continue that, but um, get into the more practical aspects of, of how do you actually accomplish this? How do you do this? Let's just really dig in this morning. And uh, first thing I wanted to ask you, though, was kind of just to get start off in left field, because you know I love to do that. Have you ever thought about what are God's greatest creations? What would you say is God's greatest creation or creations? Love. 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 (laughs) Ice cream. Okay. Okay. You know? There's probably a lot of things. You could say us as human beings. You can say love. You can say the stars. I mean, whatever. But, you know... If God created all this, you know, there's a great line from Stephen Wright. He said, you can't have everything. Where would you put it? Think about that for a second. Because regardless of what you think God's greatest creation may be, if you didn't have any place to put it, how would it exist? Arguably, God's greatest creation is space and time. You know, because you can't have everything where would you put it? Space actually defines matter. Matter doesn't matter if there isn't any place to put it, if you want to look at it that way. Space, the vacuum, the nothingness, is what gives edges. Space defines matter by giving it edges. You know, you can't have something without having nothing to put it in first. And that's the way this works. And that might sound really strange to you, but it is so true first thing God did was clear a space. Clear a space. And time. Time is another one. H.G. Wells, did anyone read The the Time Machine by H.G. Wells? Yeah. Great novel. I read it when I was a kid. And one conversation right at the beginning of the novel sticks in my mind because the time traveler was explaining how time works to someone who didn't understand, and of course to us as the reader. And he said, you know, we all think about things as having to exist in three dimensions. It has to have side to side, back to front, up and down, length, width, and breadth in order for it to exist, you know. But it needs one more thing. He says, imagine a cube that is instantaneous, a cube that has no duration, a cube that doesn't exist for any time, can we really say that it exists at all? See, in the same way that space gives us some place to put matter, time is absolutely essential because without time, nothing exists. Nothing exists without time. Time or duration defines everything in it and it defines us too. What are we really, if you think about it? What is it that we really possess as human beings? See, what we really have is time. God has given us time to live, time to exist. Time is what we really have. It's the stuff that we're made of. Our life here, if you want to think about it, is really our time here. It's all we have to work with. It's all we have to trade with, if you want to think about that as well. Money. Y'all work for money, right? Y'all go to jobs, you work, and at the end of your shift, at the end of the two-week period, whatever it is, you get a paycheck. That money, that check, what is it really? You know what it really is when you boil it all down? It's a time credit. You give your time to someone, and they give you a time credit. And with that time credit, you can then give that to somebody else, and they will give you the product of their time. We give that money to the store. They give us their goods. We give it to someone. They give us their service. But all we're doing really is trading around time. Manufacturing time, service time, whatever it happens to be. We're just trading time back and forth. My time for your time. Your time for somebody else's. Time is really all we have. In the end, we are defined by where we place our time. On your headstone... You know, your epitaph is going to be where you placed your time. Take a look at Acts 10 in your bulletins right now. 
This is Jesus' epitaph by Peter. Peter says, You know Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. That's Jesus' epitaph. How did he spend his time? He went around doing good and healing all those who were oppressed. Not bad. I think every one of us wouldn't mind having that on our headstone, that as our epitaph. How did Jesus spend his time going about and doing good things, healing those who were oppressed? How do we spend our time? But now, hidden within that time is something deeper. Hidden down in there. Because have you ever left a place and really didn't take a good memory away from it? Went to an event, did something, left, and you really didn't have a memory. You know, my whole 20s are like that. You know, I can recreate my 20s for you. I can tell you what I did. But it's like someone else telling me that it happened. It's like I read it in a book someplace. I wasn't really there. I wasn't present. My head was spun in so many different ways. It's, it's amazing to me that I was able to put one foot in front of the other for 10 years. But I wasn't there. I didn't take good memories. A memory is evidence that you are actually present to something. And we as human beings have this unique ability to be here and not here at the same time. You know, some of you are doing it right now. You're here. And amazingly, with your presence, you said, of all the places that you could be, this was the most important place that you could be because you chose this place to be here now. Have you ever heard of the tyranny of the finite? Tyranny of the finite is, is that as human beings, we can only be at one place at one time. And so whenever we say yes to something, we're saying no to something else. We have to make those kind of choices because we can't bilocate. So every place that we are, we've said no to something else. These are the choices that we make in life. This is why time becomes so important. Where do we put our time? But even though you're here, are you really here? It's one thing to make your body present to a place. It's another thing to bring your presence to that place. And that's hidden within the time. Memories are the evidence of our presence, not just our attendance, but our presence to a place, really being here. As I said, we don't exist without time. But for us, time doesn't exist without presence. Do you get what I'm saying? Our time here will be meaningless if we don't bring our presence to it. Presence is what makes time real. This is what makes us fully alive. This is what brings us into the moment. Presence is our full involvement in time. And time is the stuff of our lives. You know, it seems like we take this so cavalierly, and we do. We don't think about time as being the precious commodity that it is. We don't think about time as being all that we have. And we spend so much time in our heads, we're not conscious of where we're putting our presence within that time. You know, I said, I think it was last week or the week before, that we don't really create anything. We just rearrange things. We move them around. It's kind of like giving a, a, a tub of Lego bricks to a little kid. They can build this and they can build that. But it's all right there. They're just rearranging stuff. God is the only one who really creates. You know, that's not entirely true. I want to amend that statement right now. There is one thing that we do create. Something out of absolutely nothing. And that's our presence. We can create presence out of nothing. We can create presence within the time that we choose to be someplace with someone doing something. And presence is entirely up to us. No one in heaven or on earth can create presence for us if we don't choose it for ourselves. We're the only ones who can step away from all of that stuff and come in for a landing and be right here, right now, and take away a vivid memory that is the proof that we were present to something. This is what it comes down to. If you want to talk about the contemplative way, if you want to talk about the way of Jesus, if you want to talk about following Jesus into kingdom, 
Without this, there is none of that. There has to be presence. Without presence, we can't possibly, possibly interface with our God. We can't possibly connect with each other. We can't possibly know what love means in the deepest sense, the deepest experience of that. We can't know that we're loved. We can't begin to lose our fear and move into that place of fearless vulnerability, fearless dependence that is the human condition. It all comes down to presence. Presence. And what is the experience of presence? What does it feel like when you're present? I know we've talked about this, but I wanted to read um, John 3.16. You can probably read it on the bottom of your in and out cups, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Okay, we've heard that a million times. The interesting thing and the reason I bring it up right now is that the Aramaic word, Aramaic is the language that Jesus most likely spoke. It was the language in the streets of the Galilee and Judea in the first century. In the language that Jesus spoke in Aramaic, the word for world and the world for eternal is the same word. Now that's weird. Alma means world and it means eternal. Why? Because what Alma really means is era, age, or generation. It has to do with never-ending cycles of newness and diversity. Now, do you see like, why in the Semitic mind now, that would be the word that you would use to depict world and eternity. Never-ending cycles of newness and diversity. As you look at the world, as you experience the world, what do you see? You see the constant changing of the seasons. You see all the circles and the cycles from the moon taking its circuit, the sun, everything moving through its cycles, everything going from birth to death and back to birth again, life returning, all of the diversity of life, everything around you is Alma, never-ending, diverse, changing, always changing. And this is the same word that they used to denote eternal So here's the thing. When Jesus talks here about eternal life, when the New Testament talks about eternal life, in Aramaic, the expression is haye da'alma, which really, really means life eternal, but life that is always new, life that is always changing, life that is always fulfilled and exciting and diverse and in movement. It doesn't mean life somewhere in the next life. He's not talking about life that moves into some distant future. He's talking about life right here, right now, that is exciting and alive, full of promise, full of fulfillment, full of meaning and purpose, life that makes us feel alive. Take a look at John 10.10, right underneath that. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Abundant life. Eternal life. Hayyad Alma. All the same concept. Life that is abundant, fulfilled, exciting, complete, full of this promise and meaning. This is what Jesus came to show us how to do, show us how to live. He didn't come to give it to us in that sense because you can't have it gotten that way. It can't be transferred to you. He came to show us how to move into abundant life. It's our choice. These things you can do and greater things than these, he told us, because he was showing us how to live here now, abundantly, fulfilled, complete. You can do this, he's telling us. You can do this. But you can't just ride on my coattails. You have to actually move into that space. You have to learn. Just as Paul said, I have learned to be content in all my circumstances. How do you do that without presence? How do you do that without being here now and aware of what is really included in this present moment even if you're in jail, even if you're under duress. How do you do that? This is what Jesus is showing us. He's trying to tell us this experience of presence is the experience of abundant life, 
of Hayyad Alma? What does it feel like? You've all experienced it. The peak moments in your life. Think about one moment in your life that just stands out to you, that you have an absolute vivid memory of. You can close your eyes and you can see it. What is it? It can be anything. For those of you who have given birth to children, it's when they laid that baby on your chest and the whole world was contained in that tiny face. It was a sunset. It was a kiss. It was worship. It could be anything. But if you think through all those moments in your life for which you have those vivid memories, there will be a thread. There will be a commonality. And that commonality is that you were fully there. How do you know that you were there? Ask yourself what you were thinking at that moment and you'll realize you weren't thinking about anything. You were completely immersed in this living painting, this living moment. Everything was pushed to the sides. There are moments in life that are that intense that'll do it for us. That's why we love thrill rides and extreme sports and loud music and dancing and anything that just spins us out of our heads and takes us into the moment. And we say at those times, we feel alive, you know? Life seems to have meaning. Life seems to have purpose. So I better go out and climb a 2,000-foot rock face again because I want to have meaning and purpose and feel alive again. I better jump out of an airplane so I can feel alive again. But the point is, it's not the extreme sport. It's not the circumstances. It's not the event that is making you feel alive. It's your presence to it that's making you feel alive. And arguably, you can be just as present here and now in this room as you are on a cliff face without the adrenaline rush. But you can do that here. And this is what we're trying to learn how to do in the contemplative way. How do we become present? What is absolutely natural to the child has been lost on us as adults. The child grows up completely in that space, in the garden, doesn't know he or she is naked. But then we grow up, we hit the age of reason, we get knocked around a little bit, and then the head starts working. The head is coming up with all the plans for defense, all the plans for survival, all the programs for happiness, and we spend more time thinking about those than we do experiencing the moment. And so now we have to unlearn all of that and relearn how to be present. And the only way we're going to do that is if we practice. You've got to practice. We have to practice what we came out the chute understanding and knowing how to do in the first place. But now we have to go through a process. And there are two ways that you can do this. There is the offline and the online way to do this. You know? And we need both, but they work together. All right? So offline practice of presence would be meditation, centering prayer, quiet time. It could be even worship time, the time that we spent just now, if you are actually doing it in this way of being able to just quiet, separate yourself from your thoughts. And so what you're doing is you're actually practicing the technique of mindfulness under really controlled circumstances. And it is just a technique. Whatever technique that you use, but it's taking you to a spiritual place if that's where you want to go. Meditation can be practiced just simply for therapeutic reasons. And it has all those. And it'll make you feel better. And it can lower your stress. But if you realize what's really happening in that moment when you're completely present, that you're actually touching the face of God, that you're actually connecting spirit to spirit with him, then something else happens. Talked about in here before, you know what God's native language is? Silence. That comes from at least the only first place I heard that was Thomas Keating, one of the monks who developed centering prayer back in the 70s. God's native language is silence. If we really want to completely connect with God with no loss in translation, then we need to know how to speak silence. We need to become fluent in silence so that we really can do this. I wanted to read to you a little bit from uh, a man named Andy Puttacombe. And uh, he's actually a circus performer and uh, an ex-Tibetan monk and interesting guy. And now he's kind of doing the speaking circuit. And Just listen to what he has to say. It's interesting, when he gave this talk on TED, this is a little bit from his transcript, he was actually um, 
juggling at the same time to make his point, you know. But uh, it's interesting. He says, we live in an incredibly busy world. The pace of life is often frantic. Our minds are always busy and we're always doing something. So with that in mind, I'd like you to just take a moment to think. When did you last take any time to do nothing? Just 10 minutes, undisturbed. And when I say nothing, I do mean nothing. So that's no emailing, texting, no internet, no TV, no chatting, no eating, no reading. Not even sitting there reminiscing about the past or planning for the future. Simply doing nothing. I see a lot of very blank faces. You probably have to go a long way back. And this is an extraordinary thing, right? We're talking about our mind. The mind, our most valuable and precious resource through which we experience every single moment of our life. The mind that we rely upon to be happy, content, emotionally stable as individuals, and at the same time to be kind and thoughtful and considerate in our relationship with others. This is the same mind that we depend upon to be focused, creative, spontaneous, and to perform at our very best in everything that we do. And yet, we don't take any time out to look after it. In fact, we spend more time looking after our cars, our clothes, our hair, than we do our mind. The result, of course, is that we get stressed. You know, the mind whizzes away like a washing machine going round and round, lots of difficult, confusing emotions, and we don't really know how to deal with that. And the sad fact is that we are so distracted that we're no longer present in the world in which we live. We miss out on the things that are most important to us. And the crazy thing is that everybody just assumes that's the way life is. So we've just kind of got to get on with it. That's really not the way it has to be. When I was about 20, a number of things happened in my life in quite quick succession, really serious things, which just flipped my life upside down. And all of a sudden, I was inundated with thoughts, inundated with difficult emotions that I didn't know how to cope with. Every time I sort of pushed one down, another would pop back up again. It was really a very stressful time. Anyone can relate to that? You know? I guess we all deal with stress in different ways. Some people will bury themselves in work, grateful for the distraction. Others will turn to their friends, their family, looking for support. Some people hit the bottle, start taking medication. My own way of dealing with it was to become a monk. So I quit my degree, I headed off to the Himalayas, and I became a monk. And I started studying meditation. Pretty severe. People often ask me what I learned from that time. Well, obviously, it changed things. Let's face it, becoming a celibate monk is going to change a number of things. But it was more than that. It taught me. It gave me a greater appreciation and understanding for the present moment. By that I mean not being lost in thought, not being distracted, not being overwhelmed by difficult emotions, but instead learning how to be in the here and now, how to be mindful how to be present. I think the present moment is so underrated. It sounds so ordinary, and yet we spend so little time in the present moment that it's anything but ordinary. We need an exercise. We need a framework to learn how to be more mindful. And that's essentially what meditation is. It's familiarizing ourselves with the present moment. But we also need to know how to approach it in the right way to get the best from it. Because most people assume that meditation is all about stopping thoughts, getting rid of emotions, somehow controlling the mind. But actually, it's quite different from that. It's more about stepping back, sort of seeing the thought clearly, witnessing it coming and going, emotions coming and going without judgment, but with a relaxed, focused mind. You know, it's almost impossible to quiet your mind if not completely impossible. And so meditation is about quieting the mind. It's not about forcing everything out and being completely silent. But here's what you can do. You can choose not to think about the thought that you're aware of in your mind. You can step back and you can be aware of all those thoughts, but you don't grab onto one of them. Thomas Keating talks about sitting on the bank of a river and watching things floating down in in the current you know, and you notice them and they float by. But you don't grab one of them. As soon as you do, as soon as you focus on it, when I, what's that and you're thinking about it, you're giving words to it, now you've lost your presence. Now you've lost 
your focus. You've, you've stepped away and objectified the moment and you're no longer part of it anymore. You know? I often like to make the distinction of driving in a car, driving on a motorcycle. In a car, you're watching the world through the glass. In a motorcycle, you're in it. It's a whole different experience. On a bicycle, same thing. We do the same thing as soon as we give voice and name something. As soon as we think about it, we've stepped away from it. And it's the same thing with God. What was that quote that just came up? I need to get quit of God. I need to get quit of God so I can really find God, Meister Eckhart said. Because as soon as you name God, as soon as you give him edges, objectify him, you stepped away from him, you're no longer truly experiencing him. You're no longer speaking in silence. And so meditation is about stepping away, stepping away, seeing the thoughts but letting them go by. How do we do this? There's a couple of ways that we teach here, and one of them actually is a Buddhist technique. It's called anapanasati, which just means to be mindful of the breath. And so sitting quietly with your feet flat on the floor in, in, a, in an upright position with your head balanced, not leaning back on anything, you close your eyes, you close your mouth, you breathe through your nose, and as you inhale, try it right now, with your lips closed, inhale, and it feels cool around your nostrils, right, as the cool air goes in. And when you exhale, it feels warm on your upper lip. And that's what you're just doing. You're just noticing the breath, cool, warm, cool, warm. You don't try to control the breath, just let it be whatever it is. If it's fast and shallow, you let it be. If it's slow and deep, you let it be. It's just cool, warm. You're aware of all the sounds. I'm sitting here talking to you. I'm aware of the, of the uh, sound of the air conditioner blowing behind me. I'm aware of people walking around in the courtyard. I'm aware of movement and sounds around me. But until I just called my, your attention to all of that, I wasn't focused on it. I was focused on you. I was focused on what I'm saying. Imagine yourself in a conversation in a restaurant. Very intense conversation. You're looking right into the person's eyes and you're talking to them. You're aware of all the other conversations. Music coming from the ceiling, clink of silverware and dishes, but nothing breaks the conversation until someone drops a tray of plates and then bam! And everybody looks and you applaud and you do whatever you do. Now you've lost, control, lost connection. It's the same thing in meditation. Cool, warm, cool, warm. Stay focused on that. Be aware of the space that you're in. You can almost feel 360 degrees of space around you, but you're not grabbing any one thing. And as soon as you do, as soon as you grab onto this little shiny piece right here, ah, what am I going to have for lunch? When is this going to be over? Whatever you're thinking about, you know, did I leave the porch light on? Did I finish the tax form? All that stuff that comes into mind, cool, warm, cool, just come back to the breath. Come back to the breath. Now, when you're still first starting this, you may find that you have to do that every five or ten seconds, you know, through a ten or fifteen minute session. That's okay. Then you're getting frustrated because you can't do it right. Cool, warm. You step away from the emotion the same way that you step away from the thought. And here, a thought is defined as anything that draws your attention to a point. So it can be an actual thought, it can be a feeling, it can be that your leg starts to itch, which they will probably do. It's almost like detoxing when you sit still that long, because we're not used to doing it. A sound, cool, warm, cool, warm. Okay, now this is Buddhist. Is this evil? Is this a cult? No, it's a physical technique. It has nothing to do with anything. You bring to it your own spirituality. You bring to it your understanding of your God. You bring Jesus to the session, if that's what you intend to do. If you're a Buddhist monk, then you're going to bring a cosmic consciousness to it. You bring what you bring. This is physical. We're doing something physical to our mind. You know what we're really doing? We're trying to take our brain waves and drop them down into the alpha state and hold them there for 20 or 30 minutes. And things happen when you do that. It's just like an aerobic activity. You take your heart rate and you drive it up into a target state and you keep it there for 20 or 30 minutes and things are going to happen. You're not aware of it at first. It just hurts. It's boring. You don't want to do it. You're not seeing any results and you want to quit. But if you push through and you get through those first few weeks and months and you start seeing the changes in your body, you start seeing the changes in your stamina and your energy, then it spurs you on to do more and eventually you get to the point that you love 
the sessions themselves. Same thing with meditation. You're going to drop your brain waves down, you're going to hold them there, and you're not going to feel any different. And you're not going to necessarily feel any different in the session itself. But if you will push through and you get through those first few weeks and months, all sorts of things are happening that you weren't even aware of were happening. People may notice it before you notice it yourselves. You're not as offendable. Buttons that used to get pushed that would trigger you aren't triggering you anymore. Memories are coming to mind of things that happened in your past that you forgot, that you forgot. But not only will the memory come back, a line will connect the dots to behavior patterns and thought patterns and attitudes in the present so that you realize where that program came from and why it hits you so strong in the present and you can cut that connection, let it go and be freer. Following the breath is one technique. Centering prayer, which is in the Christian tradition, but it's an adaptation of the ancient uh, process of hesychastic prayer, prayer of rest that the ancient church followed is also similar. It uses a sacred word. So instead of following the breath, you choose a word. It can be any word. Love, family, God, Abba, Jesus, hope, anything. It's a signal of your intention to just let go. And in that same repose that you were in before, you just gently lay your sacred word down in your consciousness. Let it displace all those thoughts. It's just like dropping a rock into a still pool of water where there's a film of dirt on it. Have you ever seen that before? You drop the rock in and as the ripples go out, it clears the space. And then if you watch it, it slowly closes back in again. And so saying the sacred word, just gently, drops the rock in the pool, clears the space, and you just stay in that space. And then as it thoughts start to creep in again, you may have to say it again. At the beginning, you'll be saying it a lot. But it's not a mantra. It's not you saying a sacred word as if it means anything. It's simply an intention to just step away. Now, centering prayer has the advantage of being intermittent. So you have stretches where there is nothing going on. But that might be more difficult than following the breath, which is constant. Try both. And if you're too ADD to sit for... 15 or 20 minutes and the target should be 20 to 30, then try a walking meditation. You can walk slowly just around the perimeter of a room or a backyard or walk, take a walk around the block but when there's not cross traffic and a lot of distractions and just watch your feet moving. Get the pace going and move into this same space. You can just go into the backyard in the morning, sit with a cup of coffee and just watch the way the light moves. It's amazing how fast the shadows will move if you actually watch them for five minutes. They've already moved. Be aware of that. Be aware of the sound of the birds, the temperature of the air, a breeze if it's blowing. Be completely immersed in that space. And when you realize you've grabbed a thought, you come right back again. You can combine it with some reading. Maybe you like to do a devotional. If you're in the program one day at a time or whatever it is, you can read that, you can stop, you can think about it for a few seconds and let yourself just fall into a wordless, thoughtless state from there. To spend 20 or 30 minutes a day, as much as you can, doing this is going to change things. It's actually going to change everything. But you won't be aware of it at first. And it seems like nothing when you do it. It doesn't seem like any big significant thing. You know, and I suppose in and of itself it's not. But the cumulative effect of spending time outside of that thought process that really is the one thing that separates us from reality as it is, separates us from our God as He is, it's our own thoughts. And if we can separate ourselves from those, everything starts to change. Now, I know just sitting here and talking to you about this for a few minutes is not really maybe going to get the points home, but hopefully you're getting an idea of what you can actually do. We talk about these things, but what can you actually do? Offline, you can meditate, okay? Find a way. And if you want to ask about how this is or have questions about it, please come see me, come see Pastor Frank. I can bring some materials. We have some stuff on the website. There are things that you can do to learn more if you want to try to integrate this into your life. But remember, it's not about just getting good at doing this for 20 or 30 minutes in a very quiet space. It's about practicing a technique that then you're going to bring into all the noisy moments of your life all day long. 
If you haven't practiced it there, just like a musician doing scales in a practice room, it's not going to be available to you on stage with the smoke machines and the strobe lights and the screaming fans. And so this is what we're trying to do. In the rough and tumble of your day, when you're constantly getting triggered, when things are pushing you and bumping you and hurting you, can you become aware again and move back to that space? This is the online part. Practicing presence during the day. And this is where Brother Lawrence is our teacher so beautifully. Brother Lawrence, this 17th century French monk who was the cook in his abbey, he wrote a few letters and I wanted to read just a short one so you can see the way that he approached online. You know, In fact, he quit all forms of devotion except the ones that he was obligated to by his order because he didn't need them anymore. He wasn't doing that kind of meditation on a regular basis necessarily. He still did it when he was moved to, but mostly what he was doing was practicing presence all through his day, whether in the kitchen or anywhere he was. And he writes a letter to a woman who's in distress herself under very much duress. And he says, I feel sorry for you, madam. If you can leave the care of your affairs to Mansur and Madam N and busy yourself only with praying to God, you will overthrow the power that presently governs your life and replace it with a better power. He, God, does not require a great deal of us. All he asks is a little remembrance of him from time to time, a little worship. Sometimes we should ask for his grace and sometimes we should offer him our sufferings. At other times, we ought to thank him for the grace he has given us in which he is working in us. Now, in the midst of your work, console yourself with him as often as you can. During your meals and your conversations, lift your heart toward him from time to time. The slightest little remembrance will always be very pleasant to him. To do this, you do not need to shout out loud. He is closer than we think. We do not have to be constantly in church to be with God. We can make our heart a prayer room into which we can retire from time to time to converse with him gently, humbly, and lovingly. Everyone is capable of these familiar conversations with God. Some more, some less. He knows what our capabilities are. Let us begin. For perhaps he is only awaiting a generous resolve on our part. Take courage, for we have little time left to live. You are almost 64 years old and I am approaching 80. Let us live and die with God. Our suffering will always be sweeter and more pleasant when we are with him. And without him, our greatest pleasure will be but a cruel torture. May he be blessed by all. Amen. So, make it a habit, little by little, to worship him in this way. Ask him for his grace and offer him your heart from time to time during the day in the midst of your work at every moment if you are able. Do not constrain yourself by rules or private devotions. Offer him your heart in faith with love and humility. And you can assure Monsieur and Madame N and Mademoiselle N that I am offering my poor prayers for them and that I am their servant and yours in particular in our Lord, Brother Lawrence. Another quote from him from one of his conversations. Nor is it needful that we should have great things to do. We can do little things for God. I turn the cake that is frying on the pan for love of him. And that done, if there is nothing else to call me, I prostrate myself and worship before him who has given me grace to work. Afterwards, I rise happier than a king. It is enough for me to pick up but a straw from the ground for the love of God. He said, sometimes we think we have to invent all these things to come at God and it's not so. Just do what you normally do. But do it with this sense of presence. He would say, for the love of God, for the sake of God. That simply means for the awareness of God's presence in the midst of everything that we do. We can do this. We can keep a thread of awareness throughout our day that brings us back. And if it helps then, at a very stressful time, to go back to cool, warm, or to say, Abba, your sacred word, whatever it happens to be, to to break you out of the bubble that you've gotten into with your emotions and your thoughts, That's great because the technique that you practice offline then brings and comes online and helps you to come right back into that centered space again. Simply being present changes everything. The one thing that we can create, like space and time, it gives us a place to put everything that is really meaningful in life. Because when you think about it, the only thing that we're going to take with us is our presence out of this life. 
all those things that we are constantly thinking about in our head is not going to survive the trip, not going to survive the threshold of death. Where we place our time, where we place our presence, that is eternal. That moves with us. And so this practice of presence is so, so important. And so I suppose a question that we should be asking then, did Jesus do this? Did Jesus practice presence? Did Jesus meditate? Did Jesus pray in this way? Now, I would say absolutely. And there would be those on the other hand would say absolutely not. You're going to have to pick your poison here. But I think if you begin to read the New Testament, read the events and stories in Jesus' life, from this point of view, you just see it over and over again. His practice of going out onto a mountaintop, going out into the wilderness to pray, when after a long day with full crowds and all the pressures on him of teaching and healing and the things that he was doing, he would just disappear and skedaddle out into the wilderness and nobody knew where he went for a space of time and then he would come back again. This pattern is telling you about this need to go offline, to go quiet. But I think there's one pericope, little story, uh, that I think brings it home for me, but we have to interpret it. And this is the story... The, 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 the scene of Jesus at Gethsemane. And we've got it in the bulletins here at Matthew 26. To set the scene, Jesus is spending his last week in Jerusalem. He was warned not to come to Jerusalem. Everybody was out to get him. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the powers that be were at their wits end. They were done with him. They were already plotting to kill him. He chooses to come back for the Passover anyway. He knows what's coming He spends the whole week at this frenetic pace doing the things that he's doing and he gets up to this last supper that he has on Thursday night with his friends. He knows that he's going to be betrayed by one of his closest friends. He knows what is coming the next day or soon thereafter. And as they leave that place, the upper room for the the supper, and they move out into the garden, he, as the scripture says, becomes grieved and distressed. But read between the lines here. He is freaking out. Gospel of Luke tells us that he actually sweat blood. You know? That's hematidrosis. That's an actual medical condition. You can do that. If you are stressed enough, if your blood pressure is high enough, you can actually do that. Jesus was stressed. Let's read. Jesus came to them with them to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me yet, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so he went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. And then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand when the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hand of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. We know the scene. We've heard it so many times. But let's take this and move this into another space. If you had an intense centering prayer session, a meditation session in which no words were spoken, but everything was communicated. And you had to describe that to somebody else. How would you do it? You would do it with words. You would say, I said this. You would say, God said that. There were no actual words being spoken, but there was the sense of this communication. And the only way that you can express that, the only way that you can convey that is with words. See, this sounds like This whole prayer scene happened within just a short amount of time. But I am absolutely convinced that this was all night long. Jesus was pushed to the edge 
to the precipice. He was so stressed. He was terrified. Jesus terrified? Yeah. His human side was terrified. To know that one of his best friends that he had spent years with was going to betray him and hand him over. To know that all of his friends were going to cut and run and leave him standing holding the bag. To know that he was going to be carried by all his enemies into a mock trial happening in the dark of the night then sent to the Romans, to be killed in one of the most gruesome ways that mankind has ever devised. All of that coming, he was stressed. His head was filled with all of the thoughts, all of the images, all of the pain, all of the grief. And if he was going to go through this, if he was going to fulfill his mission, he needed to break through that. And so he goes to his spot probably a spot that he had gone to many times to pray before. And he tries to break through. And the sense is of this, you know, trying to get clear of all this stuff so he can reconnect with his Father's will. Not my will, but your will be done. I don't want to do this. But if I have to, I need to be connected with your will. And notice he prays three times. That is the perfect number. These details are not lost on the ancients, but they're lost on us. The number three that he prays is the symbol of a complete cycle, the completion of his prayer. In other words, by the end of the day, or the morning, whenever he finally stopped praying, he had broken through. He had come back to a centered place where he was connected with his Father's will. He had the presence of mind. He had the strength to be able to do what he needed to do. He didn't have it when he started. He had it now. His followers couldn't keep watch with him. They couldn't move through this, but he moves through. How do we know he moves through? Because the first thing he does, how does he deal with with Judas? You know, calmly, civilly. Brother, you're going to betray me with a kiss? Peter, impulsively cutting off the ear of the high priest's servant, and he simply (laughs) reattaches it. Peter, come on. You know, if you're going to live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. When he goes to the mock trial, he is completely composed. He just deals with them. He knows it's a foregone conclusion. He tells them what he tells them. And he lets the cards fall where they may. With Pilate, he's mostly silent. By the time he gets to the cross, he has another moment, doesn't he? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But in the next breath, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That night of bloody prayer, that night of silence, meditation, whatever the combination was there, was Jesus breaking through all of the clutter, all of the stuff, and getting back to a sacred space. And then he tells us, these things you see me do, you can do. And greater things than these. We can do it too. Think about your life. Think about the things that you're dealing with. Think about how you deal with the things that you deal with. If you could move through them, if you could come back to ground, if you could step away from all of that clatter, clutter, all of that noise, all of that negative self-talk, all of those attitudes and belief systems that make life seem as if it's meaningless and purposeless, as if you have no place in it, as if you have no identity, if you could just clear all that out and get to that place, oh my gosh, what is at the center of our awareness, at the center of our presence, is a presence looking back at us that is where we came from and to whom we are returning. That is all the meaning and purpose and identity that we will ever get and that we will ever need. It will fill us with something that maybe we haven't known before. That peace that transcends all understanding as Paul talks about it. The truth that sets us free as Jesus talks about it. It's there in that place. But if we continue to buzz around the airport without coming into a landing, we'll never know it. It won't set us free. And our lives won't change and move toward kingdom as Jesus is talking about I can't encourage you enough to move in some of these ways. 
if you have time, if you can break off some time and go offline and start praying this way. If you have questions, come ask. But at least during your day, be aware of where your head is. Keep your head where your feet are, is the way we put it in the program. But be aware. Just start asking yourself, am I thinking about what I'm actually doing or have my thoughts deviated? And bring them back. Bring them back. Move into each conversation. Look deeply into the eyes of the person you're with. Think about how you're going to leave each person better than you found them at every encounter, which will rocket you back into the present moment again. Feel that steering wheel in your hands as you're driving. See the landscape sliding by the windows. Be part of every task, no matter how menial it is, and find yourself firmly planted in the center of God's grace, and it will become real to you in a way that you may not have experienced before, and it will change everything. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much, Lord. You are pure presence. You are pure mindfulness, awareness. You are always here. You are always on. Help us just to tap in more and more each day to connect with you, to understand what it really means to be present, to feel the eternal life that you have for us right here and right now, not waiting for some time after our deaths, but right here, right now. That's what we want, Father. Thank you for the model. Thank you for your eternal life incarnate in Jesus. Thank you for everything that we have around us to show us who you really are. Help us. At the same time, you understand our difficulties, you know our stresses, you know our pain. Thank you for the patience that you show us and the constant drawing of your love. We love you because you first loved us. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.